One of the first psychedelic parties in history, the loft, was a members-only, no-booze type of vibe. So that's the lineage that we're tapping into, the lineage that I think we've kind of forgotten in many ways. Hey, streamers and dreamers, I'm Otto Kent, and you're listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, October 26th, and this is your weekly update on music, culture, and what's next. We don't really talk about this often, but alcohol can be quite central and inescapable at clubs and parties. A large majority of clubs make ends meet off of bar sales. Depending on the city and scale, a promoter or venue's booking policies can be swayed by the way a certain act or genre keeps people buying drinks. And alcohol brands have a heavy marketing presence most anywhere you look. But this all contributes to an environment that, in the end, doesn't look or feel so great, especially the morning after. We've all seen what happens when someone has a few too many drinks. Drunk idiots can be a real vibe killer on or off the dance floor for all sorts of reasons. Still, the drinks keep flowing. But it wasn't always like this. Some of the most significant and important clubs and parties ever didn't sell alcohol. Places like The Loft, started in New York by David Mancuso, or The Paradise Garage with resident DJ Larry LeVan, and even Chicago's Warehouse. As a result, the dance floors could go on for long hours as they were not restricted by liquor laws. And the collective vibe was different based on how clubbers chose to party with different fuel, contributing to a more curious and patient kind of dancer and listener. So when Michelle Luke threw her first shroom rave in Los Angeles earlier this year and decided to not serve alcohol, the social experiment wasn't that out of the ordinary. Michelle is a longtime journalist and raver, and she runs the New Rave World newsletter, which she describes as field notes from the frontier of drugs and raving. So shroom rave clearly isn't all about abstinence either, but it's one example representing what she calls the new plant-based party paradigm. And after another one of her shroom rave spa events happened this past weekend, we thought it was a great time to learn more from Michelle about her inspiration for the party, her influences, and how ideas like shroom raves resist common nightlife trends. Yeah, so I started throwing parties around the same time that my book about weed came out in 2018. And at the time, my head was really in the cannabis industry space, which is, like I said, the reason why I moved to California was to kind of cover the frontier of like drug legalization in America. And throwing parties was kind of the way for me to like put the ideas that I was already thinking about into practice. And I think that's what's really cool about parties is that they get to sort of crystallize and like put into the social material, like ideas and conversations and like, I don't know, like polarities and contradictions that are already in the discourse. And that's what's so beautiful about them, I found. It's like, it was like a different way for me to explore a lot of the same ideas that I was writing about. And so I started throwing these mushroom parties. And at first I was really scared. I was really, really scared that like people would not know what they were doing, that they would like freak out. And like, I would have a, I would have a situation on my hands that like, honestly, I'm not trained to like provide for. Mm. Um, But what I realized from my last mushroom party, which was earlier this year, actually, was when I did my first official one, like not a renegade. (laughs) And um, 
I realized that like for the most part, especially when you subtract alcohol out of the picture, like we don't serve alcohol at the bar here. Um, people are actually much more prone to staying lucid. Um, and the ones that maybe do go deeper down into their rabbit hole tend to be the ones who are like more um, practiced in mm. like that sort of um, feeling of being on a psychedelic in a party social setting. You start to play around with t- uh, not only promoting these events that talk about taking alcohol out of these spaces, they also are sparking discussions for people in places that the kind of events that you're throwing will not happen for either ever or a long time. So for example, let's say Japan or China or someplace in the Middle East uh, or places that where religiously people don't drink alcohol, but still are not going to be able to have um, frank discussions about being at a techno party and finding higher states of consciousness without booze being there. Yeah, I mean, you know, my thing is that alcohol is actually not even that great of a drug. (laughs) Once you experience like the full spectrum of psychoactive experiences that are available to you, I think that you realize that like alcohol is kind of near the bottom of the list. Like it's toxic. It doesn't help. It doesn't give you endurance. Like it's not a good rave substance, especially. And it kind of takes you out of like whatever's happening. Whereas I think when you're in a really stimulating and interesting experience, you kind of want to lean in. You want your senses to be heightened. And I think a huge part of why people are not interested in like partying on weed or psychedelics or or something that they're like maybe not as familiar um with is because they just aren't educated they don't have exposure to like good sources um and maybe they think that they are genetically like not equipped to handle certain classes of drugs which may be true i think that with education you can kind of learn to separate myth and misinformation from your personal truth and so yeah i think that weed is like a really good example because i hear the pushback more often from europeans like weed is not my party drug a lot of a lot of what we think about drugs is actually born out of the war on drugs propaganda and ravers are really good at being i think ahead of the curve and being more generally enlightened than the rest of society so i also think that there's like a huge desire and already a huge momentum behind these kinds of alternative plant based party spaces and i can definitely feel that groundswell coming from the rave scene as well so that gives me hope okay i i do love this idea that ravers are generally more enlightened (laughs) (laughs) at least maybe up until very recently they were i think that now it's become very commoditized and corporatized in its own way but yes like rave culture is ahead of the zeitgeist Well, so let me ask my question in a different way, which is just straight up. Like, do you think it's easier to throw these kinds of parties in L.A. versus, let's say, Berlin or New York City? And and why? I think it's definitely more fun to throw these parties in that 
experimental zone that happens a little bit before decriminalization or legalization. When the discourse is kind of swelling and there's a lot of momentum, but there's still this kind of unexpected or questioning, not really sure what's going on. Like a lot more people are coming on board, but it's not quite so official that it becomes kind of cringe. I think that is the best space to play around in. And that's what's happening in California right now. Like we have a decriminalization bill on on the governor's desk, which might be passed, which would be pretty fucking major because L.A. is still like the biggest market for these kinds of products or experiences or substances. And so, um, yeah, I think that if L.A. decriminalizes psychedelics, that's going to resonate around the world the same way when New York legalized cannabis, it also reverberated and had like deep ramifications, I think, globally. Well, let's talk about money. Listeners might not know, I'm a promoter, you're a promoter, we're friends with lots of promoters, we've helped out at a lot of parties. Even people who have volunteered for big events might not quite understand how much alcohol plays into whether or not an event can open its doors at all. And I'd love to know, you know, what you know about those things and and what you think it's important for people to understand because the events that you're throwing are very clearly saying these are not funded by alcohol sales. They uh, there's no bar guarantee per se because there's not really a bar. Uh, potentially the money that is funding these events has to come from different sources, but a lot of very, very large queer and um, edgy and small community-based events have to play ball with some very shady, giant alcohol price tags. I mean, this is the question that I think is one of the more interesting ones. Moving away from this idea that you have to, like, like you said, depend on the bar to make sales, but instead, maybe in this case, depending on brands to like fill in the spaces. But what I'm really interested in is moving into like entirely different ideas on like community and like membership into certain spaces. Literally, I think that like the membership model is a really interesting one, like collective ownership of a party, um, whether it's using crypto or some other form of like encryption. Um, I think that with the sort of commercialization of rave culture and how popular it's getting everywhere, I feel this need to like hide more, to go further underground And I think that psychedelics have been already demonstrably powerful in like forcing people in all industries to re-examine what's working and what doesn't and questioning their definitions of things. And so I think it could really happen for nightlife where we get a much needed opportunity to like re-examine some of the norms that we've taken for granted. Right. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say with your conversation earlier about how membership and maybe this cooperative ownership or you funding a nightclub because you take a yearly... I mean, a lot of listeners won't know what this is, but 
because there's so few club, nightclubs in the world that actually have a membership plan. But mm-hmm. one of the ver- some of the very first nightclubs that shaped house music and the future of techno were all membership clubs. And the reason why they were membership clubs is because they wanted to have an after-hours license. And they wanted to be able to um, keep the uh, events alcohol-free because keeping the events alcohol-free meant they could go after hours. And so when there's no bar sales, you need the patrons, even if they're not coming every weekend, to just own the club on the get-go. And this is like some of the oldest stuff happening that laid the the foundation for why we party all night long and listen to House and Techno. And we're so, so far away from that now. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up history because, yeah, we should talk about that. I'm definitely not the first person to be doing this and thinking about these things. And, yeah, clubs like the Paradise Garage or the first, like, think one of the first psychedelic parties in history, The Loft, was a members-only, no-booze type of vibe. So that's the lineage that we're tapping into, the lineage that I think we've kind of forgotten in many ways. Um, And I think that membership is an interesting way to encourage participation and agency when we're so used to being sort of passive consumers. Yeah, I also feel like, yeah, passive consumerism is the issue with alcohol because the more you drink, the more the club is happy. And there's a lot of culture that's pushing against this like one nation under a groove, which is like, one nation totally blacked out and <laughs> and like we we really need to um reexamine that but the last question i had for you which i think is really interesting is that during the pandemic um people who are younger had time away from going out and some of them turned 21 or 18 or wherever their drinking age was and they couldn't run to the bar and a bunch of articles came out saying that the Gen Z and younger generations are just drinking less, like full stop. So I wonder, I know you know about that. I know you've probably, maybe you've even written about it. I'm curious um, how that plays into what you're trying to do with Shroom Rave and like this greater conversation about keeping alcohol um, segmented. I think Gen Z's way of looking at drugs is so refreshing. They seem a little less bound to these old definitions of like alcohol in one category, all drugs in other categories. I feel like they see it more as like a rainbow of different substances with nicotine actually being included as like one of the drugs that you can take. And so, yeah, I definitely feel like Gen Z is leading this um, post-alcohol zeitgeist and craving these kinds of different party spaces that aren't based on like alcohol inebriation and that can feel a little bit more um, intentional and intimate. Um, That definitely feels like something that is more and more on the rise. Let's create more spaces that feel regenerative (laughs) that feel like a purge that feel like a renewal that feel like a rebirth that feel hedonistic and wholesome at the same time um i mean that's the that's the paradigm that i think we need collectively and that's why i think that so much of like my parties and other parties that i'm seeing are focusing so much these days on like 
the element of ritual and sort of creating these, yeah, these these spaces for rehabilitation into ourselves. We had so much fun and we got so much juice. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Juicy, thank you. (laughs) Okay, now you can go have your coffee. Another thank you to Michelle for joining me in the studio to talk about her shroom rave. Now, let's dive into the other headlines that mattered this week. Banning drunk Brits. One group that might want to take inspiration from Michelle Luke's shroom raves are British tourists to the Balearic Islands. They're currently under threat of being blacklisted from places like Ibiza and Mallorca. Vice reported that Jauma Bautza, the head of tourism of the Balearic Islands, is considering laws that would allow the territories to send home the rowdiest and most disruptive visitors, and potentially even ban them from ever returning. So we've talked in past episodes about British tourists flocking to cheap party destinations like Albania, while cities like Amsterdam launch ad campaigns discouraging British men from visiting the city just to party till they puke. There's real consequences of what they call excess tourism on the Balearics and not just on a lad's liver. According to the Diario de Ibiza newspaper, the crime rate in Ibiza rose 36.7% in the first half of 2022 compared to that of the same period in 2021. And the Spanish National Ministry of the Interior has highlighted that the Balearics have the highest crime rate in the entire country, with Ibiza and Mallorca coming first and second by island. The islands already changed the rules to find tourists who, for example, jump off their hotel balconies. One such rule was limiting the booze served at all-inclusive hotels or pub crawls. Wow. Just wow. So we've already talked about this next one. Band cancelled again. In March last year, Epic Games bought Bandcamp. Now it's been sold once again, this time to a company called SongTrader, which is basically a B2B music licensing service. The site changed hands so many times and eventually their entire archive of music uploaded across the years was just deleted. Yikes. Bandcamp employees have also been working towards unionization for a long time and it's unclear how this sale will influence these efforts. People were up in arms about SongTrader buying Bandcamp. And now they're feeling even worse after SongTrader announced that they are going to lay off more than half of the Bandcamp staff, including 40 members of the Bandcamp United Union and the entirety of the union's eight-person bargaining team. I definitely don't think that was blind luck of the draw. I mean, up until the time of us recording this episode, SongTrader has still not said whether they voluntarily will recognize the union. And these layoffs came pretty much as a surprise, as Bandcamp themselves reported that they had around 20 million USD in net revenue in 2022, so people assumed it was profitable. But we know how it goes. Whenever these kinds of sales happen, companies can be absolutely ruthless with cost-cutting. For example, these layoffs cut half of the editorial team at Bandcamp Daily, one of the few remaining quality platforms for thoughtful, crate-digging music journalism on the internet, not to mention being a great way of surfacing the site's genre-rich hidden gems. I'm not alone in being stressed about what Bandcamp may look like in the future. It cannot be stressed enough what a lifeline the Bandcamp model has been as an essential source of day-to-day income for independent musicians and labels. If you haven't already, check out Batchcamp, a tool for downloading your entire Bandcamp collection, and we'll keep an eye on developments going forward. 
5K twigs being sent back to the drawing board. I got hacked. Somebody leaked 85 of my demos. Well done. That's what FKA Twigs wrote in a series of Instagram stories last week and then continued on the next slide. Well done. No new music for a while now by heart. So FKA Twigs is really P-I-S-S-E-D. And that's fair. Someone leaking your music can be a disaster for artists, especially if it's song sketches or early stage demos. But I couldn't help but ask myself, insert Sex in the City meme here, what is the consequences of a leak in 2023? Aside from some super fans, who is actually downloading anything to listen to these days? And when an artist's music leaks on Reddit or a download site, what truly is the damage? And I mean, does anyone really listen to these leaked songs? And in this case, would anyone have noticed it if FKA Twigs wouldn't have called it out in front of her 2 million followers on Instagram? On the other hand, this specific leak kills me a bit. FKA Twigs is not known for dropping new music often and is incredibly manicured with their artist story. Although they have been in the spotlight just recently, teasing new songs in a Calvin Klein commercial and during a Valentino show at Paris Fashion Week earlier this month. In a third screenshot that FKA Twigs posted, they wrote back to the drawing board right before they addressed the hacker directly with a grimly looking cute dog and the warning, I will find you. So I wish her all the luck for that. Don't F with FKA. Hey Meta, nice sunglasses. A new generation of smart glasses is arriving, and these ones are actually wearable. A classic pair of black stunners. And yes, it's really a collaboration between social media giant Meta and the iconic sunglasses brand Ray-Ban. So it's basically the Ray-Ban Wayfarer with an integrated camera, a microphone, and tiny speakers. It can record videos, take photos, and calls. And when paired to your phone, it can play music and podcasts like this one. And you can live stream from the glasses directly to Facebook or Instagram. On the other hand, as always with Meta, it raises tons of questions of data privacy. And don't those descriptions make it kind of sound like professional spyware? Some early reviewers thought it felt invasive and creepy. Some shuddered at the thought of wearing a camera on their face while out in public, even if there's an LED light that always lights up and is visible when you're filming. I guess we are leaving our GoPro bro era and entering our dudes wearing sketchy wayfarers era. Best not to just say anything around peeps rocking these sunnies and run whenever they are greeting you with hey meta. Speaking of surveillance, today's recommendation is for how to protect yourself against unwanted surveillance at a protest gathering or action. Last week, amidst the flood of information flowing past my eyes in reaction to the tragic events in the Middle East, I caught a shared Instagram post from the account Comics Are For Kids. Made presumably for the BLM protests of 2020, this series of super adorable comic strips about protesting safety tips was so helpful as I prepared to hit the streets of Berlin the last two weeks. Some immediate takeaways, disabling face ID and touch passcode on your handy. As someone who grew up in the pagers and Nokia's days, it's just hadn't crossed my mind how easily your phone can be unlocked without your consent, especially if in custody, if these features are left on. Another suggestion was when posting photos from protests to screenshot the photo and post the version that has been stripped of the metadata. I'm going to put the comic strip link in the show notes. Be careful out there, but never be afraid to speak out for what you feel is right.
That's all for the week this week. Thanks for locking in. We are back here next Thursday. Take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories.